Welcome to Is This Real Life? A Bravo podcast that relates our favorite shows to our own lives and the world around us. I'm your host, Mandy Slutsker. Let's get to it. Hi, everyone. I hope you had a fabulous week. So I have a treat for you all today. I'm doing an in-depth episode on Bravo fans, mental health, and social media with Chelsea at Ono Chels, who you guys all know from the I Am The Cute One, a nostalgia podcast. Chelsea and Donnie are so funny, and if you've not listened to their podcast run, don't walk to go download it. It is just, it's the best. But Chelsea in her day-to-day life is a mental health professional and she doesn't talk about it that much. She's only done one other podcast besides this one, which was Katie Maloney's podcast where she talked about mental health in depth. And so I am so glad that she was willing to sit down and chat with me and answer a bunch of questions that I have about you know, mental health terminology, how we should use it, how maybe we shouldn't use it, um, some questions about ethics and counseling that I have brought up, I think, before, and then especially getting into behavior on social media and why it is so different sometimes from people's behavior in their real lives. And I had come across the online disinhibition effect, which was created or discovered in 2004 by a cyber psychologist named John Suler. And I had reached out to him. I haven't yet <laughs> found a way to get in touch, but I'm very fascinated with this phenomenon and wanted to sit down and talk to an actual mental health professional about it. So we kind of get really in-depth about a lot of these topics. We share a lot of opinions. You may agree, you may disagree, um, but please be kind to Chelsea uh, in any comments that you make. And as always, you can DM me and share your thoughts, um, whether you agree or disagree with things in the episode. You know, as always, um, if you like the podcast, go ahead, give it a five star rating and leave a kind review. But, you know, I'm always open to talking on DM as well. So I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode. Definitely let me know what you think. And I'll take a quick break and then back with Chelsea. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everyone. I am here with someone that most of you are familiar with. She has one of the most prolific and hilarious online presences of anyone I know. Um, Chelsea at Ono Chels is the co-host, one of the co-hosts of the I Am The Cute One, a nostalgia podcast. She is so funny and involved in the Bravo universe in 
some capacity. And she also happens to be a mental health professional. So I asked her to come on the podcast to dive deep into some questions that I've had about mental health and Bravo and especially online behavior. So welcome to the podcast, Chelsea. Hi, thank you for having me. I feel like I'm like dipping my toes back into the Bravo waters and we will see if I run for the hills after this comes out. <laughs> Probably. <laughs> um, let's start with talking a bit about what it means to be a mental health professional. Could you explain what types of mental health professionals exist? And yeah, yeah I don't, I've yeah. never gone to school for that. I don't know a whole lot about <laughs> it, you know. Yeah, so this is probably maybe for some listeners, this is brand new information. Perhaps some of you listen to my podcast and are horrified to learn that I work in the mental health field. But I have purposely kind of stayed away from publicly talking about what I do for my real job just because I keep my my lives and my domains very separate for a lot of the reasons we're going to get to in this in this episode. But Mental health professionals can look like a lot of things. I think a lot of people think of psychiatrists or therapists, but really there is a variety of licensures and backgrounds that you can, there's like many paths to getting to this. So you can be in the psychology field, you can be a licensed therapist, you can be a social worker, and a lot of mental health jobs require both a bachelor's degree and a master's degree, as well as sitting for licensures and licensure exams. So it can look like a lot of things like um, community workers going into homes, helping families. It can look like people connecting families to resources and community-based, I don't know, outsourcing. Yeah. Mm And then it can also be things like social services, which I think DSS um, and CPS get a really bad rep. Can you explain DSS and CPS? Yes. (laughs) So the Department of Social Services or Child Protective Services. Mm -hmm. And so they're, you know, the quote unquote, like baby snatchers. So the people that are keeping kids safe by potentially taking children out of families' homes. And I just want to speak quickly to that because that was actually my first internship was working in the foster care side of CPS. And one thing that's really not known is that the main purpose of CPS's involvement is always reunification of the family. So the purpose is always, and very rarely, I shouldn't say very rarely, but like it is a last resort to pull a child from a home. So when there is suspected abuse, neglect, they will get a call, they will come out, they will do the investigation. And it has to be a really unsafe, egregious situation for a child to be immediately removed. The child has to be in imminent danger. And it has to be deemed like we need to move tonight, they need to leave. Typically, what will happen is people will come into the home and provide supports and services to the family, there might be some parenting education, it might be like, They got a call for neglect because a mom had to work an overnight shift and didn't have access to a babysitter. And so this underage child was left alone. So it's things like, okay, how 
how can we provide respite care for this mom so that she can provide for her family? So that's just a long-winded tangent because I think they get a bad reputation, but um, that's another example of like what a mental health professional could look like. It can also look like counselors in the school system. It can look like, um, you know, people that are coming into your home and providing therapy services. It could be, you know, the person that you sit across from in Zoom once a week for 45 minutes getting therapy services for. Is that Was that your question? Did I yeah, answer that okay? <laughs> no, and thanks for going into, you know, the foster care system. I know there's a lot of issues with it, but there has been a huge movement, I think, in the last few years to really try and improve the child welfare system, to focus yeah. more on kinship care. So if a child needs mm-hmm. to you know, be removed from their, their immediate family, that there are other family members, aunts, uncles, grandparents that can step in until uh, hopefully the immediate parents can be reunified, you know, especially if the parents are dealing with addiction or something like that. um, And they have to go away and get and get some help. So yeah, and certainly there's a long way to go in terms of, you know, areas of growth that we still need to see, but there also has been movements in terms of educating and also providing support to foster parents and also vetting them and doing background checks and doing home visits and all of the things, because that was another big area of need, certainly, and still is. Well, thanks for going into that. So one thing I've noticed about myself is I like to use mental health terminology despite not actually being certified or trained in anything mental health related. Um, I have read parts of the DSM-5, mainly about my own anxiety disorder. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa, that's like really on brand. You mean that you were feeling anxious and wanted to read up about your anxiety? So strange. Oh, man, this this goes way back. I mean, I even remember the DSM-4, and then I was like, oh, my God, did they change anything? Like, Let me me make sure that I still qualify. (laughs) Oh, I know I still qualify. Um, But one of the words that I use a lot and that people in the Bravo space use a lot is the term narcissist. Um, I did look up what narcissistic personality disorder is, which is a mental health condition in which people have an unreasonably high sense of their own importance and they need and seek too much attention and want people to admire them. Um, And people with this disorder may lack the ability to understand or care about the feelings of others. Now, is the term narcissist on its own, not narcissistic personality disorder, even a term that's used in mental health? In, like, if I were to be talking with a client and we're referring to somebody in their life that they believe to have narcissistic personality disorder, it might be that we just use that term. And I think that it's it's funny because it's one of those things that it had a meaning outside of the mental health scope. But I think that just with, you know, therapy talk and like just the access to mental health terms, it's been lumped in. And so what once may have been like, oh, he's such a narcissist, has more punch to it now, if that makes sense, because people are using the word with intention. Whereas I think in the past, it was like, oh, like, look at him looking at the or her looking in, in the mirror again, such a narcissist, which I think is like a Greek god 
nurse something oh, something that would make it's so like, much sense so it's it was like meant as like kind of a descriptor originally but i do think you know we talk a lot about like intent versus impact a lot and i think because people are using the term narcissist meaning like they have a disorder they have narcissistic personality disorder i think it can't really be used as casually anymore because people are intending it to be kind of a diagnosis. And I'm guilty of using, oh my God, like I think more like self-deprecating of like, well, I'm a narcissist, so let me bring the subject back to me. But it's <laughs> meant in like a, of course, Joking. I'm not actually a narcissist mm-hmm. because if I was one, I would not be calling myself one type of thing. Yeah. And do you think people could say like, oh, that person has narcissistic tendencies and that would be like a lighter way to phrase it? Because I think most people who want to be on reality TV, you know, do have an inflated sense of their own importance in a way to think that they're so interesting or so special that they deserve to be on TV and that we all should be watching them. It's a special type of person. I also think the same kind of person that wants to be a politician and run for (laughs) office also has the very similar tendencies. And so it doesn't mean I don't think they have a diagnosable disorder most of the time, but Mm -hmm. that they have elements that are just like a little bit more towards like one end of the scale than the, like we took the whole population on, on like a, continuum that people who seek out certain professions Mm -hmm. may kind of be closer to like a narcissist than like people who seek out other professions that don't put them in this themselves in the spotlight yeah i think all of that is exactly right and i think that's what makes this conversation so complicated and nuanced is there is in the venn diagram of like bravo liberties and people with personality disorders, people with anxiety, like all all the things, the center circle is going to be larger just because of the nature of, number one, a person who seeks out going on reality TV, but then also people that are now dealing with the fallout of being on reality TV. I think it's, you know, it's this causal merry-go-round that we can't really get off of because, you know, they may have certain tendencies anyway that are leading them to seek out this career. And now that they have this career, now they're dealing with people having access to them via social media all day long. They're seeing the criticism, they're seeing the hype team. And it's kind of just like a pick your poison of how that manifests into other problems, if that makes sense. I don't think, I mean, in short, and this might not be PC of me, but like, I don't think normal people go on Bravo. Like even your most normal, and I'm using normal in like air quotes, but like even your most boring housewife, if, if you were to meet in real life, they wouldn't be your friend. They wouldn't be somebody that's like in your friend circle because they have that star quality about them that got them cast on a show. Which is very sort of eclectic and very focused on themselves and not mm-hmm. really someone that is great to always be around because they are so focused on themselves. Right. Um, so then there's the term narcissistic abuse. And I've heard this a lot recently. And people have described it as just the type of emotional abuse that comes from a person who has narcissistic personality disorder. I had 
incorrectly stated earlier in a podcast that like I didn't believe there like abuse is abuse like what's the what's so special about narcissistic abuse like couldn't all couldn't you say all abusers in some sense are narcissists but it appears that a lot of mental health professionals do use this term and do believe in this term do you have anything to add on that yeah it is a very specific type of abuse it can oftentimes be very insidious it can be very isolating and this isn't to discount other types of abuse certainly i think all abuse is inherently isolating but i do think with the narcissistic abuse there is a level of um instead of the traditional cycle of abuse there are more there's more flair and there's more um you know, another term that might come up, gaslighting. Okay, like there's more bad, of here. that. Yeah, <laughs> there's <list>. more <laughs> there's more of that psychological you are making this up and here is the persona I present to the world so that nobody will believe you type of yeah. situation. And again, it's it's hard because are some of these like armchair diagnosers probably correct? Again, because of the nature of reality TV, the likelihood of some of these things showing up is higher. But I would also like to say for the record, I'm not commenting on any like specific things on Bravo. And I make an intention, like I do it intentionally that I will never be diagnosing anybody. I watch Bravo like it's my Super Bowl, it's my ESPN, it's like I watch it for fun, it's silly, and I specifically watch it in that way and not in the like, let's get down to the nitty gritty, what mental health diagnoses are people displaying because it's just not, that's that's not my vibe, that's not ethical to me. Like I just, I have to watch Bravo from the lens of like, I'm just enjoying my sports, you know? Yeah, it's entertainment and um, gaslighting, which I've talked about a number of times on the podcast because it, for me, does feel like a pet peeve when people use it to mean liar. Like, Mm -hmm. oh, he's a gaslighter. It's like, no, he just lied. But gaslighting is, is a different type of abuse where it makes you question your own feelings, thoughts, and sanity. And if someone is gaslighting you, they'll attempt to make you question reality and the purpose is to convince you that you can't trust your own thoughts or instincts yeah and i think that's important for people to remember i'm guilty again of this as well it's something i'm working on of like just throwing out like oh gaslighter blah 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 this is one where i'm less likely to throw that out just because when you see gaslighting in real life you know how truly devastating and life-ruining it is. So it is not the same as a boyfriend going and getting blackout drunk and, you know, doing whatever. It's not the same as somebody saying they're going to be somewhere and they're somebody somewhere else. It's not somebody lying. It is truly somebody being so good at manipulation that they are making you question what you have experienced firsthand for yourself. So an example of gaslighting would be that you and a partner get into an, a fight. Your partner screams at you, says X, Y, and Z, and pushes you down the stairs. Again, like horrible, just horrible situation. And then later, when you're rehashing it, they are so good at manipulation that they start to say, that didn't happen. No, you said this and I said this and I would never push you. And 
and actually you tripped. I tried to catch you and you fell down. So don't blame this on me. And they're so good at twisting it that not only do you start to question, like, did I make that up? Was that really happened? But they ultimately end up being the victim. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times the victim of the abuse will end up apologizing to their abuser. And that is gaslighting. It is not the same as like you said you were going to be home at 10 and it's 2 a.m. and you lied to me. Yeah. That's a that's a very good example. Um, and then I always mention personality disorders. And I, <laughs> I just, when I talk to people who don't watch Bravo and they're like, what makes Bravo special? Why is it different than other reality TV? And I say that on shows like The Bachelor, they kind of, yeah, they find like interesting people, but they tend to be like normal-ish people who they then manipulate in different ways to behave a certain way on TV. But with Bravo, I feel like they seek out people that are, you know, very, like they live their life out loud. They may suffer from some sort of personality disorder and therefore like putting them all in a group you don't have to supply them with alcohol for them to act nuts. You don't have to put them and sleep deprive them and all of that for them to behave a certain way. This is who they are, whether or not cameras are on them or not. And it makes very compelling television. And you see these like relationship dynamics, but I said, so, <laughs> yeah. So I, I just yeah. want to really quick the like saying like acting nuts we don't want to equate personality uh, disorders with, with being acting. nuts, being nuts. crazy. Right. That is, I do think people go a little too hard with the like, you can never say crazy, you can never say nuts, you can never say X, Y, and Z. But I think when we're talking about personality disorders, we don't want it to be a synonym for like acting crazy, acting nuts, just because there are certainly plenty of people that have a diagnosed personality disorder who are doing the very hard work to be yeah. able to manage their and regulate their emotions and participate in society in a socially acceptable way. And I think, I think everything you said is spot on, but also I just want to like that point term. that out that, mm -hmm. that that is when people are going to go hard for like, you shouldn't say crazy. You shouldn't say like, that would be where my line is. And again, everybody has a different line, but like for me, if it's like, Oh my God, like I got so drunk, I was crazy. That's a different situation than saying like, Oh, she is bipolar. Like she's crazy, you know? Yeah. God, I didn't even realize I said that. <laughs> that's what's no, like so sorry. scary. I like, didn't want to, and again, no. I'm not like calling you out. I just that's no. part, that's a mistake, and I've done it too. But it's just yeah. like I think if we can all be mindful of like how we're using the language, because again, I think, and this is the beauty of the internet, is I think that sometimes people will like pick and choose the selective outrage of like you can't say that word or whatever. But I think you just have to be intentional about like what is it. I'm referring to in this situation and what am I calling crazy or nuts? If that makes sense. Yeah. I guess when I think about like the behavior of women on the housewives, I think like flamboyant, I think crazy, I think colorful, I think mm -hmm. like live out loud, you know, brazen electric, like there's so many acronyms and, and, nuts and you can <laughs> say and you can say nuts. They act nuts, nuts on these shows, but, but it, you don't want to use it in the same phrasing right, as like personality because disorders. Of, it's not yeah. it's not causal. Like these right. women are nuts because 
they had that quality for a producer somewhere to be like them. They are the ones out yeah. of all of these women that we're casting. Like they are the ones, you and know, that we're going to have. To be fair, like they all have traits that we identify with, which is why it's so amazing to watch them because there are elements of ourselves that have these behaviors and thoughts as well. They maybe be a little more muted than in the housewives. So to see like how, or we may quiet those parts of ourselves. Mm -hmm. And so to see some women embrace all of themselves and not shut themselves up and not be quiet is sometimes sort of liberating to watch. It can be liberating or incredibly triggering. And I think that's Mm. the beauty of Housewives and why we ride for certain ones and hate certain ones is they display the full gamut of what it is to be a human. And I think a lot of times, and I ask, and I myself, like, okay, I also notoriously, like, we need to normalize having terrible taste in Housewives. I always am, like, so into the most chaotic housewife on a franchise that's like probably universally hated but I think sometimes we need to look inward of like what is it about these housewives that I'm gravitating towards and then also what is it about these housewives that I am having like a visceral negative reaction towards and a lot of times I think if we were to sit and examine our thoughts about the housewives that like we cannot stand they oftentimes display character traits that we possess and do not like about ourselves and to see somebody displaying that and you're having that reaction of like oh my god I can't believe they did that there is some like you know tendencies where you're like if you were to look deeper you're like okay maybe that's like I'm not liking that so much because I do that at family functions you know I love that that's so true now Before we get into some of the online behavior, which I really want to spend most of our time diving into, Mm -hmm. I did want to ask you some questions about the ethics around counseling. And the reason I wanted to ask you is because, you know, when I had told the listeners that I wanted to do an episode really focused on psychology and online behavior, and I said, does anyone have any recommendations? And a lot of the recommendations were people who already have like online personalities and also Mm -hmm. happen to have mental health credentials. And I don't know if I remember this from like my mom or who was a social worker or what, but, but I had remembered like certain sort of standards of ethics and things you can't do. And I noticed some of these people and I'm not calling out names or whatever, but um, okay. I will with one. (laughs) Oh, God. <laughs> um, the um, Louis Teresa's husband has an ex who is um, a licensed social worker and a clinical social worker and says she is an expert in narcissistic abuse. And I believe I read in an article that she had at some point had Louis as a client And I remember that you're not supposed to have any romantic relationships with clients or like former clients. So that was sort of like strike one. And then also, um, and I don't know if that's true or not. I don't know if it was a rumor that was written, but I did read it. Um, And then also just how people show up on the internet and specifically 
you know, it, the, this is the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics, uh, which it was last updated in 2014, says for social media, it says in cases where counselors wish to maintain a professional and, per- and personal presence for social media use, separate professional and personal web pages and profiles are created to clearly distinguish between the two kinds of virtual presence. And um, that they also should take precautions of avoiding disclosing confidential information through public social media. And so when I saw her behavior, and I know she's been on a number of podcasts, and I'm sure she has a lot of really important and interesting things to say, it kind of was like a red flag. Like, I feel like I remember hearing, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. This is, and I got like, I get a sort of a, a reaction in my gut like I don't trust this person's advice (laughs) if it's true that Louis was her client yikes I don't want to negate any abuse that she experienced but yeah it's a complete like absolutely not clear line that you are never to ever have a romantic or sexual relationship with a client ever like in certain I think in like certain uh in certain professions and certain backgrounds there might be like a a certain amount of time but certainly with social workers and I think psychologists um it's like a never like ever 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 you can never ever 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 um so that would be a big one and then also if she's talking about Louie on these podcasts and you know talking about him from her relationship point of view okay yeah that's kind of a gray line if we're going to overlook the glaring number one but if he was her client then that's breaking HIPAA so again I'm not going to negate her experience and also certainly not like her professional credentials that cause her to be a expert in the field but yeah that is concerning i ooh. it was just I really hope, yeah. alarming and just in general people who don't separate their personal and professional social media and who feel comfortable talking about like people's diagnoses and the shows m- make me uncomfortable so um moving on to the kind of online behavior um, there was this. Oh wait, can I can yeah. I speak to my like boundary with um, like the online presence of therapists? Yes, yes. So I think yeah, I think you armchair diagnosing is one thing. I am I have a hot take about this, and it again is my personal opinion. It's my boundary. I even like I've only ever done this will be my second podcast talking about mental health. And both times the first was on Katie Maloney's podcast. And the second is this. And both times I had to really like, you know, when you asked me, I like always love coming on this podcast, but I had to really like think about like, okay, what is the purpose of this? What is my role in this? What am I going to talk about? What am I going to not talk about? And I have intentionally, again, when I comment on Bravo shows, it's from the lens of like humor and funniness. And yeah, sometimes I'll get into the nitty gritty of it, but like I am never diagnosing anybody on my screen. I do not watch Bravo as a mental health professional I watch as a human being that likes mess I think that there is a difference and it is a changing landscape so for the code of ethics to come out in 2014 it's just a different digital space 
in 2023 than it was in 2014. And I think for a lot of professionals, especially people in private practice or people who are, you know, running their own mental health business, and even some nonprofits too, like it is important to advertise and you will not be as successful in helping people without having a digital presence. That being said, I think it's a much bigger difference. I think it's completely different for there to be an online therapist that is, you know, talking about like tricks of the trade for like how to help regulate yourself when your kids are home from school in the summer than a mental health professional who is a weighing in on anybody that they have never treated personally and diagnosing them from afar because that is horribly unethical. But I think also, and this is where the hot take comes in. So take a breath, like the therapy TikTok of it all, while incredibly helpful and also giving access to people that potentially don't have access to information. I know there's a lot of people, um, women in particular, who have been diagnosed with ADHD in their 20s and 30s has increased so much because of things like TikTok, where they're like, oh, wait, ADHD is presented presents completely differently in women than small boys who need Ritalin in second grade, like this might be me. So I think that it's helpful in that regard. But when it comes to mental health professionals giving kind of like cookie cutter advice to the masses and presenting it as I am the authority on this subject, here's how you do X, Y, and Z, I think it can be incredibly damaging. And I think it can be incredibly dangerous dangerous for people to be feeling as though they don't need to see their own individual therapist or see their own psychiatrist or whatever that's individualized to them and that they can give, you know, here's my specific situation. I think it's just so dangerous for mental health professionals to be like, I am the authority. Here's what you do when you have depression. Here is what you do when you're in a toxic relationship because every single situation is so nuanced and individualized. And I think there is this, this movement online where mental health professionals are kind of like almost getting away from individual care and like packaging these like short, you know, minute long clips that don't even begin to like dive deeper into like, how do you address trauma? How do you address family dynamics and boundaries? How do you address self-care as you're like peeling back the layers of, and doing the internal work? And so, sorry for ranting, but I think a lot of times any of the like very famous therapists in the social media space, I kind of side eye to the exception being Dr. Becky is a godsend. She has helped me so much from afar with my dog and all of that. So I will give the caveat. I am subtweeting everybody, but Dr. Becky, <laughs> take my money. <laughs> I think that's so true because I get so uncomfortable with it as well. And as we become avid consumers of all forms of media, I find that we have gotten relaxed and less, I'm trying to find the right word, less critical of where information is coming from and who is presenting it and how much to weigh that information. Like we take gossip as gospel and we 
We take blind items as fact. Right. Exactly. Oh, I did an entire episode on blind item culture and Uh how so many of them, and I went through so many different ones that ended up being untrue and were horribly damaging to the Bravo stars that they, you know, were about. But we're not good at delineating like, oh, how should I weigh this? Was this a like peer reviewed research article or is this just someone's post on Facebook? (laughs) You know, and like how much weight do you give? Not that you shouldn't take in all the information, but it's not all equal. And I find anything on TikTok to not be like, I don't know, it's not the same level of information as information that you get that was fact checked in a journal article like it's, it's just not the same thing yeah and I think again there is an argument to be made for accessibility and yeah, access totally. to information and like I mean you're brilliant Mandy and you know it like not no, everybody is it, going to be able to to read and understand the peer-reviewed article but you're exactly right I think it's I think there's also this like hustle culture of like, well, I got to get it out. I got to got to be the first one to break the story or I need to weigh in on this. And there's such a pressure to be like, you know, presenting as like, I've got to, I've got to post about this topic or this topic's important. And I got to like show my support or this drama thing's happening. And I got to get the first joke out in the meme world. And I've fallen guilty to that too. And I so appreciate your account because a lot of times I can get caught up in the rat race of like, oh my God, this is hilarious. Let me make a joke. And and then a lot of times you're the one that's like, well, let's take a step back. Hold on. Let's all take a breath. What about this? And I'm like, oh, Mandy, okay. I, I just, see you again. I'm just not a reactive person, especially online. It's just I also am not online as much as a lot of other accounts. So I routinely miss things. But everything I hear, I sort of take with a grain of salt. Like I don't take things as fact until they're proven as fact. Mm-hmm. And so – I'm very happy to like make educated guesses, but I'm not going to say it as it's fact. It's like, well, I think this, it's my opinion, but that that's just my opinion. That doesn't mean a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, what a reasonable approach to take. Again, as one of the women, um, now I was diagnosed before 20 and 30, but as a woman with ADHD, I see that and I'm like, oh my God, my brain has a thousand thoughts and a thousand memes and how fast can I get it posted? And then, you know, I'm like, like I don't really think that's accurate. If you look yeah. back at X, Y, and Z, like this doesn't line up, you know? If you do any sort of retracing the steps, <laughs> clearly things are missing here. And I'm like, well, I've already made a whole 10 carousel reel about it. So like, Oopsie kitty, to quote Gabby's dog. But you're amazing that you can move that fast. Like, I can't do anything digital like that at all. I mean, well, speaking of mental health diagnoses, ADHD is a superpower and a curse because I can do a thousand things at the same time, but not one single thing. And so (laughs) doing things like reading a whole article and seeing at the end that what I just posted about was not true probably could work on that, you know? (laughs) We've all got our things. Okay. Well, I wanted to mention a article that I read in March that really got me thinking, which was, when did the Housewives fandom become so toxic? And, um, you know, the article talks about now that social media has inundated every corner of the reality franchise, and there's sort of this 24-7 news cycle full of vitriol and pylons with unlimited access to housewives has come a parasocial attachment, um, permanently changing the franchise and the way people view it. 
Fans are active participants in the shows, and the Housewives ecosystem has become one of immense negativity, where fans call for the firing of any polarizing cast members and seem to expect the utmost morality of the cast whose murky layers were once revered. Ooh, yeah. So I'm going to comment on this in two ways. First, as a Housewives lover, and then as a mental health professional. So number one, as a Housewives lover... Stop asking for people who make good TV to be fired. There needs to be some distinction between true, problematic, unacceptable behavior and somebody being messy and somebody being somebody that you don't like. Because if we had all completely calm, peaceful, boring people on our screens, we would not have a television show. And then we would be complaining and tweeting Andy about how boring a show has become. So I just would ask you to start appreciating the villains on a franchise, because without the villains, we wouldn't have conflict. We wouldn't have people to root for. I mean, that's the whole premise of Unbreakable, a classic M. Night Shyamalan film, is there is no hero without the villain. So like, we need the villain causing chaos, stirring up mischief. And yes, if it crosses the line of, as Stephanie from Mocha Minute says, any isms, racism, ableism, colorism, yes, we should be checking. Bravo, we should be checking the housewives because certainly you can be messy and evil without being problematic and like destructive and triggering to the viewers who did not sign up to be triggered. But that's just you know, on the side of as a viewer, like, we need the mess. So stop that. Stop it. As the <laughs> mental health professional, I think the parasocial attachment of it all is so interesting because so the idea for those that don't know of parasocial attachment is it is a one sided relationship where we as Bravo viewers have access to people's lives. We get to see their families. We get to see their struggles. We get to see what they're good at. And we really start to feel like we know these people, right? We're tuning in every week. We're, you know, buying their products. We're DMing them. And we start to really know them. I think an interesting thing too is with podcasts. Like I feel that way about Ben and Ronnie from Watch What Crappens. I've been listening to them from for years and so I'm like when I went to a live show I'm like oh like my friends Ben and Ronnie because I am they are in my ear talking to me whereas like conversely the housewives do not know who we are Ben and Ronnie now you know we know each other a little bit via DM but like they don't know who I am and it's like this this strange power dynamic because we start to feel like they are our friends and therefore we can give them advice criticism feedback as if they are people, <clears throat> as if they are people that we really know. That is so fascinating because I don't think I fully understood parasocial relationship until you just described it that way. But because we feel like we know them, they also have a power over us. And some of them, I feel like, use that power by forming online friendships with Bravo accounts and feeding them information throughout a season to try and shape a narrative online so that the viewers have certain thoughts even before anything airs. And I'm thinking, for example, Monique and Candace with that fight, which was so toxic online, Monique had been leaking things to people. Um, 
you know, Lisa Rinna had famously had so many different Bravo accounts that she would DM and tell, you know, personal and private information to about the shows. And they felt that there was a trust between them. And then when she kind of really went off the deep end online and decided to block everyone because I think personally she had a social media addiction and could not stop herself. She then burned all those bridges and all those people were like, I thought we were friends. Mm -hmm. And it's like, did you really think you were friends with Lisa Rinna? I think the most egregious display was Jen Shaw, her first season, Mm. sending out the Shaw Squad merch. Now, I never sadly received a sweatshirt or a tumbler but there were so many accounts that she was sending merch to that she was dming that she was going live with and there was this element of like oh we're friends and i and there's so many layers to this and it's so interesting like how deep the rabbit hole goes because yes bravo celebrities and bravo accounts have a parasocial relationship there are a few you know exceptions to the rules of people who are genuinely friends like I think of Stephen Faces by Bravo and Monique are like like very good friends hang out or like they actually like that is not parasocial because it is reciprocal like Monique considers Stephen a friend as well but I think a lot of times there is this element of like I must be special because they are sliding into my DMs and you have no way of knowing how many other DMs are being slid into and what the true motive is. I think when I was a Bravo account, I did many, many things wrong. But one thing I think that I did well was I never really allowed... It made me uncomfortable because I talk shit about everybody. It made me uncomfortable to get too chummy with anybody because I'm like, I'm going to still talk shit about you and this is just going to make it awkward. So I always kind of just kept my DMs like, oh, like, haha, glad you like the meme and kind of kept it that way. But I do think it's like a slippery slope of you start to DM and you're like, oh my God, they like it. They've chosen me. And then it turns out like, oh, I'm being used. And that's to no fault of anybody. I think it's like a completely understandable and human reaction. And then it's so funny because I think sometimes with meme accounts and their followers, there's that same parasocial relationship of followers really feeling like they know the people that they're following, that they know these influencers, they know who they like, they know who they don't like, they DM all the time. And um, it's it's nuanced because I do have followers that I like DM all the time. And I've been DMing since like, I don't know, 2019 when I started my account. And like I do, I'm like, oh, I love when this person pops up and we can like talk shit together. But I think there is a level of like sometimes people think that they know the meme account more than they actually do. Do. So it's like it it goes on and on and on. You know, We all do it. I know I do Mm -hmm. it. I feel like I know and have like – more of a relationship with certain people on Vanderpump Rules. They have no idea who I am, but like they've greatly influenced my life, you know, and I would love to, you know, or Andy Cohen, when I finally met him in 2016 and actually told him how like he got me through the worst year of my life. Yeah. You know, and I said like, it sounds crazy, but like, you know, I lost my house and, uh, you know, my apartment, I lost my mom. And like the only thing that brought me any sort of comfort was watching Watch What Happens Live and The Housewives. 
And yeah. and I think that's the positive part. Like parasocial, of course, we're talking it about it in the context of like, you know, potential manipulation or like a delusional sense of like connection. But I think as human beings, all we want is connection. connection. That's that's what we're looking for. In any interaction, we want connection. And I think there is beauty in these parasocial relationships because, yeah, like I started this account because I was going through postpartum anxiety and I just needed an outlet. And I found this whole community of people who wouldn't tell me to shut up when I talked about housewives like the people in my real life would talk about. So I think, <laughs> like you know, like I think there's something really magical about finding an online community. I just think that we need to be more mindful of what the relationship actually is. And that's not to say that it's not going to turn out to be real meaningful friendships. I mean, look at me and you, me yeah. and Donnie have a whole business together now. We met on Instagram. Like there is beauty and there is the capability of forming meaningful co- connections. But I think you just have to be aware of like, is this reciprocal and do they know the same amount of information that I know about them? Do they know about my family? Do I, do they ask me like about my job or how my mom's doing or how, you know, how my dog's vet visit went like, or do I just know all those things about them because I watch them on television? Yeah. Do you think there's an element of COVID and people being more online that where all of our relationships for some period were online that, Mm -hmm kind of changed how we view relationships and that we kind of put online relationships at the same level as our IRL relationships. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's interesting because when I did Katie's podcast, it was still, it was like not COVID proper, but it was still like, I think it was like 2021. Maybe we were like, most people were still home. Essential workers were like back. But I think there was an element of like all of us were craving that connection and we were all online. We were having like Zoom parties with what was it like house parties before Zoom like oh my cornered God. the market house party and you had to like play games with each other. Yeah, there was like the smash bot. Like I remember I for my birthday in June of 2020, I had like a weird like it wasn't Zoom, but like online get together where we played like online charades and we were all like I don't know. It was so weird. But like we were doing like stuff like that with our actual real life family and friends. So there is an element of like, what really is the difference between that and tuning into the same Instagram live every week? Like, we're all making these connections and the connections are real. I think, again, you just have to ask yourself, like, is this reciprocal? And what is the other person viewing this relationship as? And I think a lot of the like Bravo toxicity it's so complicated because it's also compounded by like real life, really important commentary and pointing out like real issues with Bravo as a whole. Like I'm thinking about the Black Lives Matter resurgence and all of these like real things that needed to be pointed out and needed to be held accountable, but then also compounded with people being chronically online, our nation never being more divided and people needing an outlet for their frustration, anxiety, rage, and it just becoming this like cesspool of outrage. Some, again, very needed outrage and important outrage and some like, oh, and now I'm going to curse you out over DM because X, Y, and Z, you know? Yeah. And that sort of gets to the kind of heart of it all, which is 
I've really started to think about this over the last few years. I've had a lot of guests on my podcast. I have enjoyed like 99% of them. And I have noticed sometimes that the way people behave on my podcast and how we talk sometimes end up being vastly different from how that person behaves online. And that really led me to question like, why are they, are they doing this for attention? It doesn't seem like that's really what their personality is, but their online personality seems different than their like real life personality. And I started going down this rabbit hole of like, why are people acting this way online and acting in a way that's more aggressive or sharing information that like is very private about themselves with someone they barely know or all of it just seemed, I'm like, this just feels off. So I came across this, researcher, a cyber psychologist named John Suler, and I have emailed him. I have not called him, but I've emailed him and I did not hear back. I did, according to my, um, the advice of my stepmom, search his name in obituary just to make sure he's still around. Couldn't find an obit, um, but I didn't, I'm not the kind of researcher you are. You're really good at digging things up. So um, he came up with this term um, and this you know, phenomenon called the online disinhibition effect. Um, And it's where individuals in cyberspace, this came up, you know, in 2004, (laughs) do the World Wide Web. (laughs) In Al Gore's World Wide (laughs) Web, um, do or say things that they would not do or say in quote unquote real life situations as they feel less restrained and able to express themselves more freely. And there's, he mentions kind of two kinds of disinhibitions and some kind of are concurrent benign disinhibition where people may share like very personal things about themselves like secrets emotions fears wishes unusual acts of kindness or generosity sometimes really going out of their way to help other people and i think we've seen that on social media and it's amazing Mm -hmm. um and then there's toxic which is rude language harsh criticisms anger hatred even threats people visit sort of the dark underworld of the internet places of pornography crime and violence territory that they would not explore in the real world and some things can be both benign and toxic and he goes through six factors that interact with each other to create this effect and i want to go through each factor and stop after each one and get your thoughts okay so the first one, and these are like super psychological terms. Like they're some of them I really was like, what the hell does this mean? Okay. <laughs> the first is dissociative anonymity. And so basically just how it's easy to have some anonymity online. You don't have to use your real name. You could be Ono Bravo. Mm-hmm, <laughs> you until know, people they're, discover otherwise. But yeah. Yes. <laughs> and and people have more of an opportunity opportunity to separate their actions online from their in-person lifestyle. And Mm -hmm. so they feel less vulnerable about self-disclosing, acting out, whatever they say or do can't kind of be directly connected or linked to the rest of their lives. Um, And the online self becomes a compartmentalized self. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this one is funny because I see some of me in this. If this was a housewife, (laughs) I would hate her. Um, So yeah, I started my account anonymous because, again, the mental health side of things, but I I purposely wanted to separate church and state in terms of what I do for my, you know, quote unquote, well, what I did for my real job and then this online presence because I've since like shifted careers and I'm, I am doing more of like the social media thing now. Um, 
But I think that when I think of dissociative anonymity, I think more of like the burner accounts, right? So people who are creating these burner accounts that don't have a profile, don't have anything, and they are specifically creating these accounts to go into the comments, say terrible things, to DM people, say terrible things. And this is like a, a persona that they have created that gives them the freedom to say things that they would never say on an account that could be traced back to them. I do think that there is an aspect to like the meme account and just um, online meme culture as well of like, yeah, there are some Bravo accounts that are anonymous that just post memes. And I'm sure to some degree, it's like, of course, they're choosing to post on this platform because they're not going to be making the same jokes and memes as they would on like a personal account or any of that. Again, I am one of them or was one of them of like, this was my kind of creative outlet to uh, say funny shit about Bravo. Now, luckily, I always had the wherewithal of like, I knew eventually things can always be traced back to you. So like, I didn't separate myself so much that I was never saying or doing anything that I wouldn't feel comfortable speaking to an employer about, which I eventually had to do. And that was really fun to sit down and like, you know, go scroll through memes and such. But I think when it comes to this like dissociative identity, we think about the people who are going online and accessing a part of themselves that is so unlike their real life persona that it is like a separate complete identity and i see this like we see this a lot in the not cyber world when we have like you know these these politicians or these very like evangelical like anti lgbtq people right that end up having these like whole separate secret lives of having relationships with the same sex and you're like how can you even how can you even like come to terms with both part of parts of yourself, but it truly becomes like a splitting and a separate identity of like, that's my identity over there. And again, not dissociative identity disorder, anything like that, but to some degree, a splitting of who you are and what you're willing to say and do. That's so fascinating. Like all of this is so interesting to me. Um, The second is invisibility. So In real life, when people are discussing something personal or emotional, they often avert their eyes and avoiding eye contact and face-to-face visibility disinhibits people. So sometimes people will say something meaner looking down at the ground than they will looking into someone's eyes. And online, especially in 2004, before a lot of the video technology became Mm -hmm. very prevalent, you never looked someone in the eye when you're typing something to them. And, uh, you know, people don't have to worry about how they look or how they sound or how others look or sound in response to what they say. And that in real life, seeing a frown, a shaking head, a sigh, a bored expression, and many other subtle and not so subtle signs of disapproval or indifference can inhibit what people are willing to express. But in the absence of that, the invisibility and not seeing someone's reactions to you makes it easier to say harsher things. Absolutely. And you also see this in things like road rage, where you are in your car, you are not seeing the other person, you are envisioning like that red Toyota is my mortal enemy, I'm going to run them (laughs) off the road now. And there's an element of being able to separate 
the personhood of the person that you're talking to. And then again, when combined with that parasocial element of like feeling like, you know, this person, but they don't necessarily know you, it gives you that added bonus of like, I can give this punch because they deserve it because I know they can, they know better than that. But also I'm not having to look them in the eye while I'm telling them X, Y, and Z and, you know, saying these terrible things in their DMs. I always wonder, you know, some of the really mean things that people either DM to housewives or write in their comments. I just think those exact same people would run into them at BravoCon, get a photo, say how much they love them. People, I mean, the Bravo celebrities say that like in real life, when they meet people who watch the shows, everyone is so nice and kind and people are rarely rude. But yet online, it's completely different. I forget who, and see, and now I might just be making this up again. This might be another instance that Mandy's going to fact check me and be like, that's <laughs> just, you just made that up. No, but I, I think know. I remember I, it was a housewife with a podcast, which I know does not narrow it down at all. But somebody was talking about being running into a fan, them tagging them them going to repost it and them seeing that the last DM that had been sent before this like wonderful run in was like horrific shit. Like, Teddy. I think oh, it was okay. Teddy. Is that who it was. Yeah. And it's like, that's just a perfect example. But speaking to the invisibility aspect of it, how many times has a housewife had enough after I can't even imagine how many terrible DMs they receive on just a daily basis? But how many times have we seen them post? a nasty DM, like not censoring out the name or the profile picture or anything. And then how many times has that person been like, how dare you for blasting me? And now all these people know who I am that are saying these things, which, you know, that doxing is a whole other issue. But at what point do you have to stand 10 toes down in what you have said to this person? And if you're not willing to be blasted for after calling them a see you next Tuesday, like, that that's the invisibility piece where you felt that you were invisible enough to be able to send these horribly degrading and awful messages. And you feel now that you're the victim because that invisibility has been pulled away from you. And now people see that you are the one who has sent this. It's wild. It's people are insane. Um, <laughs> myself included. We're all insane. Um, okay. This one, I don't know how to pronounce. I think it's asynchronicity. Asynchronicity, mm-hmm. where it says that people, and this is usually like not on an Instagram live or something, but on Twitter or in comments, people don't interact with each other in real time. And so, you know, others may take minutes, hours, days, or even months to reply, and not having to cope with someone's immediate reaction disinhibit disinhibits people. So it's sometimes referred to as an online hit and run, where someone posts something nasty, and then they close their computer, or they turn their phone off, or they put their phone away. And they, you know, just feel safe putting it out there where it can be left behind, and they go do something completely different, and let chaos ensue. I mean, how many times have you sent an email even where you're like, "Eh, I'm not sure how this is going to be received, but I'm going to send it anyhow. And then you don't know when they're, you're not like reacting in real time. Yeah. I think the flip side of this too is, you know, 
with not being in sync with the person that you're responding to, a lot of times it can be the way it's interpreted is completely based on perception and also based on the other person's motives and the other person's feelings. So there's been many times, and I've been on both sides of this coin of there have been times where I have sent something thinking I'm like having fun with the other person and like bantering and the other person is pissed and they are receiving what I am sending as like fighting, whereas I'm like playfully poking. And I've also been on the other side where I have been like, what the fuck? And they're like, oh, I'm so- that is not my intention of how I that was not how I said it. That's not how I was would say it to you. And I think that that goes back to you saying like a lot of times having in-person podcast conversations with people, it's a different side to them. Yes. It is such a different experience to sit across from somebody and look them in the eye and you can hear humor, you can hear sarcasm, you can like pick up on somebody's um, social cues on their humor style. You can understand the nuance of the conversation and what they're trying to portray and how they're saying it. And even if, you know, like I'm sure several times this podcast, if I have misspoken or said something kind of like weird, you can get the gist based on context clues and how I'm expressing myself and you can understand what I'm saying. Whereas in written form, especially in a forum like social media where people are less likely to use punctuation or, you know, check for grammar, it's really up to the discretion of the person on the receiving end of what, how they're interpreting what's being said. And then when you combine that with this like lapse of time, it's just a recipe for chaos and madness. And there's also that element of because you don't know when that other person is going to respond. So now I'm thinking of like, Oh my gosh. And this is where the messiness of me comes in. But like, sometimes people are having full on arguments in my comment section. I am not involved whatsoever. And I am like, you know, Kim Kardashian poking out from behind that bush, just watching it. Cause I'm like, this is madness. You're going back and forth, back and forth. But in that situation, you think about like, they're getting that like rush of adrenaline and those dopamine hits and that like, ah, like that fire in your soul every time that person's responding back to them. And it goes back to like, I mean, we all are just animals, but it goes back to like rats in the lab when they are like pushing for food and they don't know when the pellets of food are coming out. They are more likely to push that button because of the uncertainty. Cause it's like, it's the same reason we gamble. It's the same reason we love slot machines. It's like, Maybe this will be the time I get a response. Maybe this will be the time I get that pellet of food. And so because it's so uncertain of when you're going to get that response back from the person, it's like satisfying to our brain when we do get that hit. And it does like then it's like, aha, and now I've got my argument ready to go and I'm going to hit you again with this point. And it does give us a level of like it is satisfying to have an online dissertation and argument For most people, I find it incredibly stressful. I find it like I'm like sweating. Anytime I've gotten into a back and forth, I'm like, okay, okay, you win. Like this is too much. But for a lot of people, it's, again, connection. And if you are intellectually stimulated and also for some people, like if you're right and you're righteous and you're like you are being an a-hole because of X, Y, and Z, it feels good to be able to let out that rage and have that release of like, Finally, I get an opportunity to tell you why you're so wrong about this. <laughs> I I don't enjoy doing that online. I feel like in real life, it's different because you can 
kind of spar back and forth with people who you have like policy disagreements with. And you're like, okay, like, tell me, you know, why do you think this might be effective? Or, you know, all of that kind of stuff that it's so hard to get nuance in, especially social media, that I have given up trying. And so that's why I podcast because you can have more nuanced conversations and not everything is like black and white. And I very much live in the gray and I view life in gray and shades of gray and that's kind of how I operate. And so when people are like, are you team Melissa or team Teresa? Are you this or are you that? Are you, you know, and it's yeah. like, I don't know that, that, that I'm both and neither. <laughs> yeah. And for me, like as outspoken and obnoxious as I am in all of my opinions about everything, most of which I have no authority to be speaking on because I'm a Gemini. So, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> I am so not confrontational. And so I have a three comment rule where I will, I think you taught me it, right? Did, were you the me? one that taught me this? Or maybe it was Namade. Somebody taught me the three comment rule where you can go back and forth with somebody a total of three times. And after that, if the argument is still going, you have to let it go and let the mouse go. Like I, you just have to disengage because at that point, it's clear that neither party is going to change and you're only causing more, more. chaos. But having said that, but having said that, I think that we have some friends who are like amazing at articulating their points and getting like mm-hmm. getting people to understand Taria's their point is really of view. good at yes. doing that online. Like yes. Taria, I think might be the only person who is actually provided information and changed minds via Instagram in the history History. of the app. Uh, Yes, I agree. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay. This, I can also not pronounce number four. (laughs) I'm just going to try laughing. Solipsistic interjection, which it seems to be more of a reason that people share personal information with others online rather than some of the negative sort of toxic stuff, but that you feel closer to someone because you assign a voice or a visual image to them. So when we have people and we don't know what they look like or what they sound like, we create a character for them. And I think this is a very common in online dating where, you know, you maybe see a picture of someone, but you've never heard their voice and you imagine what their voice is. You imagine how tall they are. You imagine all of all of these things and it becomes sort of set by one's internal representation system based on personal expectations, wishes, and needs. So this felt a little less to me about some of the toxic inhibition, um, disinhibition and more about like why we feel closer sometimes to people online that are anonymous ish Mm -hmm. than we do to people in our real lives. Yeah, and I think in a strange way, it's the same in different ways, obviously, but it's the same kind of way that sometimes we might open up to a therapist because mm-hmm. they're a neutral third party who don't know anything about our real lives. It's not going to affect anybody in our like true inner circle. And I mean, I've gotten a bunch of DMs from people like reaching out about certain things or things I post about and are like, I've never told anybody this, but me too in this way. And I think there's a healing part of it. And there's a really positive element of being like, I can 
tell you this and like, you don't know me, you actually don't even know what I look like. I can be, I can let this part of myself go on the flip side. It's really funny. Like despite, you know, the follower count, I do have a false sense of like the people who follow me sometimes know things before people in my real life. Like, yes. for example, me coming out as bisexual to 30,000 people six months before I told my mom and dad. Sorry, mom and dad, if you're listening. But like there's an element of like it's somehow lower stakes because it's not going to affect my day to day life. And I think the tough part is when we create these characters for people sometimes. And then when that's also attached to that parasocial element, sometimes we create ideas and stories in our mind of who that person is that is actually completely outside the scope of how we know somebody. And so we have this idea of like, oh, well, this person is this way or this person must X, Y, and Z. And this person posted about this and therefore they must think this. And that's where it gets a little bit dicey and a little bit you know, murky waters, because now we are assuming, again, that we know more about this online avatar, essentially, than we actually do. Wow. Yeah. Here's another dissociative one, dissociative imagination. So (laughs) consciously or unconsciously, people may feel that the imaginary characters they created exist in a different space, one that uh, and that one's online persona, along with online um, others, live in sort of a make believe dimension separate and apart from the demands and responsibilities of the real world. Um, Emily Finch, an author and a criminal lawyer who studies identity theft in cyberspace, suggested that some people see their online life as a kind of game with rules and norms that don't apply to everyday living. And once they turn off the computer and return to their daily routine, they believe they can leave behind a game and their game identity, and they relinquish any responsibility for what happens in this make-believe play world that has nothing to do with reality. And yeah. that's like a whole other aspect to online behavior. But I do that's wonder. That's a whole different podcast, really. Right. That's a whole <laughs> different podcast. But I do feel like some people feel like what they say, like they don't take any responsibility for how they behave online because they have separated it so much from their real life. I think a good example of this, and again, not diagnosing just like based on this, I, a lot of these, it's so interesting to learn about because like I, I haven't heard a lot of these like specifically named, although it is, of course, like part of the online culture. But I think Lisa Rinna, Mm -hmm. in a way, like a lot of the housewives actually do things online and then have no it's like, well, that was that I think Lisa Rinna even said, like, this is my housewives persona. And to some degree, I mean, again, if if dissociative imagination was a housewife, I would probably hate her because Yeah, I think I do this to some degree, right? Right. Like I have a podcast persona where I'm maybe like, I mean, I make similar jokes in my real life, but I'm more likely to like tell a story about X, Y, and Z that I might not like share to, you know, people I've just met. But I think when you have this persona, you have to recognize that at some point there is going to be spillover. And if you do something toxic or if you do something unkind there are real life repercussions and it might come back to haunt you. And I think this one in particular, 
I think a lot of like the insidious underbelly of social media, a lot of people who engage in sometimes really dangerous and toxic behaviors truly like might be preaching love and light and think that, you know, they're squeaky clean because there is that dissociative element of like and rationalization of like, well, I did this because of X, Y and Z or this person deserved it. But I think there's this element of I can now like remove myself from that and that was a different time, a different place. And now I'm this person in real life. The whole idea of doing something because someone deserves it, that level of righteousness that I feel like Bravo um, fans have, you know, taken so seriously. Like, I am going to defend Ariana's honor against Tom Sandoval because it is a righteous and just cause. And no one else in the history of the world has wronged someone more than Tom Sandoval wronged Ariana. And I am not going to let him, I'm going to make it my job to ruin his life and leave one-star reviews for his bar and send terrible messages to him and all of these things because I'm doing something good for women. I, I don't know. It's it's wild how people justify, like, do I think Tom Sandoval is behaved horribly? Yes. Do I need to, like, reach out to him in any way or engage with him in any way? No. Yeah, like, I can say he's a piece of shit, and I can also not want to make the people that are unfortunately employed by him not have a job. But I think it's funny. I did a um, on one of my like Monday poll series, I had like, who's the worst Tom on Bravo? And it was like <laughs> Thomas Ravenel, Tom Sandoval. And I, w- I just said like afterwards, I did a slide and I was like, if you voted for Sandoval, you need to watch more Bravo because yes, he's a terrible person, but mm, like we need to maybe examine some of the other Tom Girardi, Tom Girardi. Yeah. Like, No, it's yeah, it's it is funny, but there is also an element of I think what makes reality TV and Bravo work is and what makes it so interesting and compelling. I always say, like, I love a season where there is like a big fight between two characters and it's so nuanced and there are teams because a lot of times we resonate with the person whose experience is most similar to ours and we can really see the points of view. I think a great example was old school Vanderpump Rules with the falling out of Stasi and Kristen and Katie. Like the audience was so divided because I think a lot of us have experienced some sort of friendship breakdown and breakup in that way where we could see the different sides of how it was all playing out. And I think that's what makes it so magical is like, yeah, these shows are so stupid, but we're not stupid people and we can resonate and relate and see how our stories are reflected on screen. I think the issue is when we start to feel like our experience is the experience that we're seeing on screen where it's completely reasonable. And again, a totally valid human reaction to see something that's similar to what you went through and really resonate with it and really root for that person because you know personally how it felt. Like empathy is a really powerful connector. And again, it all comes back to connection. But I think the issue is like, when you are feeling like you have personally been victimized, or you have personally been the one on screen that is that this is all playing out, you have been cheated on, you have been cheated on by Tom Sandoval, you need to take a step back. And like, yeah, it if this is hitting home for you and triggering you because you've gone through something similar, 100%, I completely understand and 
like want to validate that experience of like being pissed off. Actually, when I went on Katie's podcast, I told her that because at the time she was married to Tom, I was like, your husband triggers the shit out of me. He reminds me of my toxic ex-boyfriend who everybody thought was like this little cutie patootie and was like a monster behind the scenes. And I like, again, had to like tell her that because I was like, I've been talking shit. I need to like, that's the Catholic guilt. I'm like, bless me, Father, for I have sinned. I've been talking about your husband. (laughs) But I think you have to recognize like, I was never married to Tom Schwartz. I had Mm -hmm. a boyfriend in college. Like, I think we need as viewers to take a step back. And if it's getting to the point where we are more enraged than the people who are being paid to be on the show, we need to like take a breath, get a sip of water and like take a minute. Because a lot of times I think Bravo liberties know to some degree what they've signed up for. And I do think there are certain shows, Potomac in particular, I think they are just the best at what they do. And they all have an understanding of what they've signed up for. They know they're an ensemble cast. They move a mile a minute. There's a thousand fights a season. And I think there is some level of like, if we as the viewers are still holding on to a fight that happened you know, six seasons ago that the women themselves have moved past, we need to take a beat and like follow their lead because it's actually their life. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. And then the final one and one that I feel like we have all noticed a lot in recent years, especially during the pandemic is a minimization of status and authority. So authority figures express their status and power in their dress, body language, and in the trappings of their environmental settings. The absence of those cues in the text of environments of cyberspace reduce the impact of their authority. On the internet, everyone has an equal opportunity to voice him or herself. Everyone, regardless of status, wealth, race, or gender, starts off on a level playing field. People are reluctant to say what they really think and stand as they stand before an authority figure, a a fear of disapproval or punishment from on high dampens the spirit. But online, in what feels more like a peer relationship, with the appearances of authority minimized, people are much more willing to speak out and misbehave. Now, I think this is when everyone became an epidemiologist, when everyone (laughs) became a therapist, when everyone became an expert on everything. And I think the best example in more recent times is, you know, people tweeting at Andy directly, (laughs) fire this person, do this thing, or saying terrible things to him. And it's like, he is an authority figure within the Bravo universe. He is like the utmost, I guess. It's he is who we have decided has the most power. Now, if you actually read books about the housewives, you learn he does not have the most power. There are executives in suits that we don't get to interact with that have more power than he does, right? But he does have some power. And so people just like kind of going... And trying to like tweet at him directly, it's it's wild. Um, this whole authority thing is just wild to me as someone who's like worked in public health and like mm. you know everyone thinks they have are their experience means that it's like they understand everything. Their one experience, you know. Yeah, I think the same goes for like reading legal documents and talking about these really like nuanced cases. And again, I'm a hypocrite because like, was I weighing in on 
Tom Girardi and Erica every week watching Beverly Hills? Of course I was. But that's why it's so funny when it's juxtaposed with people like the Bravo docket who are two lawyers that are like reading these legal documents and are like, here is what this actually means as opposed to like, you know, Joe Schmo in the comments with a dog as their profile picture saying like, <laughs> you know, Erica knew and here's the proof and Tom Girardi's innocent. You know, it's it, it just there is a level of like anybody can say anything on the Internet. And I think, again, it goes back to like therapy TikTok if, where you really have to start being mindful of who are the sources. And I think it's so hard sometimes obviously not for you, but for me to like trace back the origin story, because sometimes it's like this story drops. And again, I have been guilty of this too. It's like, how quickly can we post about it? How quickly can we make a joke about it? And before you know it, like, you know, it's like when the reunion looks are posted and you're just scrolling in your feed and it's just like, you know, 50 accounts posting the, the reunion looks. The same goes for any controversy, any new headline. And before you know it, it's like, well, Kyle and Morgan, what's her face are definitely banging. And I saw them hooking up in the 7-Eleven. Like it just these these things start to like become it's like the snowball effect that you lose control of. And all of a sudden there's an avalanche and you're like, we don't even know where this started. And we're all reporting on this. Like it's fact. I, in my episode that I did with brands by Bravo on, um, blind item culture, we actually went deep into, uh, Diana. I can't remember her last name. And this mm-hmm. like idea that she, was involved with Jeffrey Epstein and that she like sex trafficked women and famous people and that her book room, whatever it was, was like a call girl book. And it all goes back to this like one article from 2012 and that all got resurfaced when she was on the show. And there's no proof in any of it. And no one has ever come forward with allegations. Wow. We, she wasn't I went. named in any of the documents or anything? Nope. Wow. And like, how damaging. Because that was like, I, that was presented. I certainly repeated that. Like, that was like fact. Like, oh, you know. And I mean, I'm not trying to like, I don't think she was a great, necessarily the best person or the best housewife or anything oh, like that. No. But the Jeffrey Epstein stuff, it turns out the picture wasn't even her. Oh, God. So, and I'm sure she met him because very, very wealthy people of like that level of wealth tend to meet each other. But there are Mm -hmm. just like how there are so many pictures of famous celebrities with Donald Trump back in the 90s. Like it doesn't mean that they would take a picture with him today. And it doesn't mean really anything. Like having your photo taken with someone really doesn't mean anything. And so that was like a wild one. That is wild. And that's another example of like, let her do her work herself. Like she ended up showing us who she was all on her own. Like mm-hmm. she showed us she was a terrible person in real life, in on social media, in active real time. So like we, yeah, stuff like that is wild. And also, okay, going back really quick to the status of authority. Mm-hmm. I think, again, we see this with housewives and Andy, even though, yeah, the hierarchy, he's like not their boss, but is their boss, but like he's doing reunions. But I think sometimes like, we see this online behavior in the comment section or calling Andy out or, you know, trying to have this like friendship, but like sometimes people, I don't know. I'm I'm thinking of like Kelly Dodd and Andy type of situation back and forth. There's that element of like, 
Now, do I think Kelly Dodd might say all these things to Andy's face? Probably. So maybe yeah, that's she's a bad probably example. the one person whose online persona and real is life persona same. is the exact same. <laughs> yeah, but like, so terrible example. But you know what I mean? Like that, like level of like, I can tweet you this thing that I probably wouldn't say face to face at the reunion. A lot of them, I think, yeah, get real brave, and they they tweet things to fans and to each other. Mm-hmm. Now. I don't want to keep you any longer because we've been recording for quite some time, but I want to know, is there any sort of like final example or something of a type of toxic online behavior that you think we need to touch on? Again, could be a whole other podcast, but I think I just would caution people, especially when it pertains to Bravo and to reality television to remember that like, yes, These shows mean something to us, and that's why we love these shows so much. But what gets me is, like, when it comes to fans arguing with other fans in the comments, there's such a level of missed opportunity for connection because you are literally going toe-to-toe, fighting with somebody, pulling out like remember in this season remember in this season with another person who shares your exact interest to such a degree that you are both like citing previous seasons and bringing in facts and figures and it's like it's such a missed opportunity for us to be like wow we all love this stupid shit so much and like we should be (laughs) celebrating that instead of literally it's like the spider man meme of everybody pointing at each other. It's Mm -hmm. like, we're all the same. And yes, it's fun to argue and bicker. And like, you know, my favorite thing is people coming into my DMS being like, are you kidding me? Like you like this person, what is wrong with you? But I think when it becomes like, I mean, the greatest example of all like Candace versus Monique, where it became like a morality identity where it's like if you are team Candace or you are team Monique and it's the opposite of what I am then we cannot be friends because that is just like at a at a cellular level like it goes against everything I stand for I think another example flipping the script even more is like I think we need to be aware of the way in which we can get caught up in the online narrative. And I think of, and I think this was on your outline, but it's like one of the most egregious to me was all of the speculation about the robbery at Dorit's home. Yes. He was clearly traumatized. And there was immediately this like conspiracy theory energy out there of like, it's not true. Here's why it's not true. Here's why she's faking it. And to me, that was just like, I was always the first to say, if it turns out that this was fake, I will publicly apologize and say, oh my God, you guys were right. I will publicly like say that's despicable, disgusting. But what I was seeing was a woman who was traumatized, who was trying to film after being traumatized and then had to go online and see her experience be discounted and dismissed. And I just think in an era where we're supposed to believe all victims and give them the power to speak on what has happened to them, it was just so disheartening to see this bandwagon effect of also like people that I really respect and people that I'm friends with jumping on and being like, well, I think this and it seemed weird that she did that. And it it just that to me 
I was just so upset by it. Like, I was like, we're really like jumping in on this, huh? That was probably one of the most egregious ones to me because it's just like people have a tendency and this is just human nature, but especially Americans um, to really believe a conspiracy more than the truth because they don't think they think a conspiracy is more realistic, right? That like something has to be more complicated and dark and deceiving than the like utter insanity of what it actually was. And that scares me because I think, you know, we see a lot of conspiracies on Bravo and real life on everything. And people are more likely to believe some like far fetched thing about the government and let me tell you, the government does not have its act together enough to, like, hide as many things from you as you think. Yeah, it's gotten to the point where conspiracy theorists on Twitter are trying to convince me that aliens don't exist. And I'm really concerned for, like, the upside down world that we're living in. <laughs> but I think, like, I always joke that I, the only place I like my conspiracy theories are on Bravo. But it's about things like Nor from the Reality is podcast saying that, the charcuterie cheese. Oh gate yes, of I I agree Roni with that. Was Lizzie like yeah. those types of low stakes behind low the scenes stakes. production level things? But I think the thing to remember is that yes, these women are cartoon characters, and it is only exacerbated by their personality traits and the fact that their entire personhood is being edited down to a forty-five minute episode where they maybe get. 12 minutes of total screen time to produce a storyline that's going to be coherent from start to end of the season. And we are seeing one side of a multifaceted real life human being. And yes, are many of them garbage goblins? Absolutely. Is that why we tune in every week to love them or hate them? A hundred percent. But I think when we forget that there is a real life human being behind the other side of the screen reading the comments and the things that we're posting, I think that's a slippery slope. And again, I'm a big old hypocrite because I post memes and jokes all day long. But I think every person has to examine where their line in the sand is and be really mindful of when you're being caught up in the fun part of the Internet of like being part of a team and part of a bandwagon and just acknowledging when you may have overstepped your personal line of moral conviction. And I think for me, you know, I can say something not nice about a housewife on the podcast, knowing that they will never hear about it. Um, And I can even put a comment, but to tag them in a comment, to write them directly, to Go out of your way to make sure they see something that's mean is where I feel like we all could take a like step back and be like, you don't need to go out of your way to tag them. Yeah, and I think I've been messy before in certain ways. I always try to stay on the good side of funny and mean. Sometimes I fail horribly. Most of the time I feel like my jokes are pretty like, they're pretty harmless. Funny. Yeah. But I certainly have gone sometimes over the line and like tagged them and stuff. And I can never be mad when I get blocked by somebody because I'm like, okay, that's a boundary. Like I get it. I have the thinnest skin in the world. Like I can't, I don't even look at my like reviews on the podcast 
in like fear of what might be said. And so I can't even imagine like the thick skin they must have. And so I have no problem. Like, yeah, Jax Taylor blocked me over a Malcolm in the middle meme. But if that triggered him, that triggered him. And it's his right to say, okay, I don't care to see this anymore. You know, totally. We all need to have our boundaries, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, Chelsea, thank you so much for kind of diving into a lot of the like psychology aspects of Bravo, including online behavior, which I am endlessly fascinated with. I, I, you know, sometimes find myself and especially during like the 2016 election, 2020 election, like being so much angrier and more frustrated and so I tried really hard like not to put all of my thoughts out there and to like pull back but other people have really leaned in and you know I I hope people take time especially to reflect on what we've talked about Um, I'm definitely going to reflect on what we've talked about and like the importance of stepping away from social media regularly to reground yourself connect with you know have a conversation with someone that doesn't own a social media account my entire family does not have social my media husband's. my it's husband which amazing. is so funny like, i think it's yeah. so important it's so grounding you know my brother probably doesn't know any meme in the history of memes i don't think he's ever seen a single one you know he doesn't get any of the online jokes but like he's happy as a clam so my mom recently my mom recently (laughs) retired and has like been online more like hasn't she never was somebody that like she had like an instagram to like keep up with my brother and me but like never really posted she's retired now and she still is like pretty like not connected but she started sending me these like minion memes that's just like a minion and then it's like good morning have a great day and like she is just like (laughs) delighted and tickled by it and i'm like you know what sometimes like there is like a a level of that to somebody like me who is chronically online where I'm like, yeah, taking a step back. And I think, you know, and I want to give the disclaimer. I think I have definitely been guilty of being too involved in the online world. I think one reason why I took a big step back from the Bravo community is during the pandemic. I mean, there was a point where I was going live like three times a week, like this community I love and this online platform and like the people that follow me I feel very very connected to in a real way but I think there was a part of me that got too wrapped up in some of the like behind the scenes stuff and so I really it was a great learning lesson for me to be like I do need to take a step back and that's why there are some days now where like I may ghost for like a day or two if I'm having a tough day behind the scenes because I've just realized for me if I'm having a hard time in my personal life I should not be on Instagram at all. I should not be answering DMs because that's when it's I'm taking things the wrong way. I'm internalizing things. I'm projecting my feelings outwards. And you want to be online in a healthy way and in a way that's bringing value to your life and not adding stress or strife or added trauma. Amen. Amen. <laughs> well, thank you for letting me talk your ear off. This is like no. This is exactly so what I wanted. I love hearing from you on this, and I know that you have like a comedy podcast. And I like to joke around a lot on this podcast too. This is more of a serious topic, but I, I really like diving into these kinds of topics on the show. And my favorite episodes are the ones where we really get to dive deep into something really sort of specific. 
because uh, I think we all get to learn a lot and we can apply it to our own lives. There's a lot of these lessons we can apply to our own lives. And, you know, I'm going to start asking myself, would I say this to someone while looking them in the eye? Yeah. Well, thank you for giving me this opportunity. It's so funny. Like, you know, I do have two licenses and a master's degree and all the things. So in my real life, I'm very like comfortable confident and comfortable talking about this. I like heard my voice like quiver a couple times on this podcast. And it's just, I really do feel like I was like melding my personas into one all the time I'm talking about like stupid shit and dumb movies. And so thank you for giving me the chance to talk about like, you know, things that matter too. Hey, everything you talk about matters. Well, Honestly, I the, I the podcast that. <laughs> that you did about She's the Man, I think, is that it? Was one of my favorite I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> was it that one or was it, it was one with, um, where Gabby from Summer House reviewed. Oh, it, um, oh gosh. And I, it was the Amanda Bynes. It was um, an Amanda not Bynes. She's the, not yeah. She's the Man. Donnie's going to kill me because I always get it confused with the Mandy Moore one, but she is like, Oh God, this is going to, I remember daughter or, um, no the episode because, um, I remember in real life that they edited the movie poster because yes. she was giving a peace sign peace and people sign. thought it would be like an anti Iraq commentary, commentary, on the Iraq which it, it was literally just a peace sign. Yeah. So for everybody hitting their steering wheels at home, yes, you know the name of the movie. I should absolutely na- know I, the name of the movie. Yeah, Go to I Am the Cute One, <laughs> the feed, and find the one with Gabby from Summer House, who that, is our guest. It just made me laugh so hard because I actually don't think I ever saw the movie, but hearing your guys' commentary on it, most a lot of the movies I've seen, you know, yeah. and they're still funny, but that one was like, I don't know what it was about that. I was like crying laughing. I think That's it was because there was a Bravo like executive PR person that had to sit on it. And I think like imagining that person listening to the discourse and them being like, this is my job right now was I think what sent me over. Yeah. Because that was our first Bravo Liberty who it was like when summer house was airing. So anytime they did any press, they have to, they have to have a Bravo PR person on and yeah. Oh gosh. Yeah. I felt so bad for her, but I just kept, I kept the whole time making jokes. And I was About, like, that was, oh. that it killed me. I was like, why was that the one episode that I like can't get out of my head of I am the okay. cute one. Everybody could take a breath. Stop hitting your steering wheel. What a girl wants. What a is girl the name wants. Of the movie. I had to Google it. Cause I was like, I'm going to wake up in a cold sweat at 3am being like, what a girl wants. <laughs> So good. So good. Everyone, check out Ono Chells on Instagram and on Twitter. And check out the I Am The Cute One podcast with her and Donnie. They are so, so funny. And they bring love and light everywhere they go. (laughs) Thank you so much. And if you hated everything I had to say, you know what? I get it. I annoy the shit out of myself, too. And just maybe, you know, take a beat and think about what we talked about and just don't try to ruin my life. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Have a good one, everyone. (laughs) 